I'm going to uh, read uh, from uh, Paul's letter, uh, chapter 16, in verse 25 uh, to the end. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans uh, has taught us that we never, as Christians, uh, get beyond the gospel. That is, for many Christians, the gospel is the entrance into the kingdom of God, and then there's all of this life to live. But Paul has been making the argument that no, that the gospel has implications, and therefore we never get past the gospel, that we need it not only uh, for our salvation, but also for our strength as Christians. This is why Paul will say in another letter that what God has been doing uh, throughout history, human history, is delivering his people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of sun, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that this gospel must be received by faith. There's no other means by which someone can become a Christian, but to receive the gospel, this declaration that you have been moved because of Christ from the darkness of this world into the light of his son's kingdom, and that is by faith alone. That is where redemption is. That is where the forgiveness of sins comes from. The Christian life therefore, is a process of renewing every dimension of our being through our thinking about and praying about and hoping and living out the implications of the Gospels. That's why Martin Luther, in his little commentary on Galatians, says this. He says, the truth of the Gospel is the principal doctrine. I know we want to make it about other things, but Luther believes, and I think he's right, that the gospel is the principal doctrine by which all other doctrines hang. He goes on and says, it is most necessary that we know it and teach it to ourselves and to others, and even to beat it into our heads continually. Now, why would he be so committed to teaching the gospel to even say, and and Luther has this propensity uh, to uh, overstate his case, let's give him that, but to beat it in our heads. It is because the gospel is far too easy to forget. That's why Martin Luther said that I preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week. Chapter 16 closes this majestic letter with the same three themes that Paul has been advancing from the very beginning. He's been advancing the the doctrine of the church, this idea that God has been redeeming a people for himself. Uh, uh, Theologians uh, often call, call that ecclesiology. Because it's taken from the word that we have taken assembly from in the Greek. And which later, uh, the Germans will end up calling us a kirk, 
which is how we're called the church. And I know that's a bunch of languages get you how we got, we're called the church, but that's how come we're called the church. Because in the beginning, we were just called an assembly. Because that's what congregations were, I mean, uh, 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 synagogues were called in the beginning. And so Paul's point is, is that ecclesiology is a key theme of why Christ came. He didn't uh, come to save us as individuals. He came to save us into a community, into his bride, his body, his church. In fact, the way that Paul describes it in chapter 16, if we had read the whole letter, it's the only place he provides 27 Christians by name. As you read through there, and, and you will see that of these 27, we know very little about any of them. We know a little bit uh, because of history about Narcissus. He uh, was a very close friend of Emperor Claudius when he became a Christian, but he was such close friends. When Claudius uh, died as emperor, Narcissus was so grieved that he committed suicide. Also, a house church met in his home after he died. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in Acts 18. Rufus is mentioned in Mark 15. But other than that, we just don't know much about these folks. But what can we learn? We can learn that Paul loves the church, which binds him to the Christians that are in it. Paul has never been to Rome, and yet he has this affection for the people in Rome. Paul mentions each house church by name. There are five of them. And he mentions them all by name. Uh, there was a house church in Priscilla and Aquila's home. There was a house church in Ercivilus, uh house. There was one in Narcissus' house I mentioned. Uh, Cretus had a ha- house church and so did Philogius. But that's not all Paul does here under the idea of this theme of the church. He even adds a piece of liturgy. If you don't understand liturgy, liturgy just simply means the way in which or how we worship. In every church, high church, low church, high church has lots of formality and tradition and heritage and uh, often a very uh, uh, predictable flow of its worship. That would be a high liturgical churches and often Episcopal and and Roman Catholic and and even some Presbyterians are high liturgical churches. And then there are low liturgical churches. In fact, they're so low they don't even have a bulletin because there's no need for anybody to follow along. Yet, there's a liturgy. Everybody, don't let anybody fool you by saying they don't have a liturgy. Everybody does. It's, it may be informal, it may be formal, but everyone has one. And so Paul wants to add a liturgical piece to the churches that meet in Rome. Do you see it? It's verse 16. Paul asked them to add the holy kiss to their liturgy. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. He's not saying that all churches have the liturgy of the Holy Kiss. What he's saying is is two things. One, I would like you to begin this practice in your worship. And I'll tell you why he does that in a moment. And in fact, it's still around today in different forms. But he wanted them to add this piece of liturgy to the church in Rome. The other thing is that he wanted to know that all the churches that I've been visiting uh, love you and greet you and are one with you in Christ. 
But what does it mean to uh, greet one another with a kiss? This kiss was often called the kiss of peace. And remember, it's a, a, a more of a Middle Eastern custom that is coming uh, westward into Rome. And so Paul is taking this idea of familiarity. In fact, when I say familiar, familiarity, he's talking about family. That the kiss of peace. Today, it's often called passing the peace. You ever wonder if you go to some churches and they say, it's, it's now, uh, let's take a moment and pass the peace to one another. They're referring back to Paul's institution in, or asking of this church to add this piece of liturgy, uh, the Holy Kiss. And people do it differently. And in some churches, it's just you getting up and greeting one another by shaking hands, which they wouldn't have done in the first century. This idea of shaking hands is definitely a, a Western European idea. Uh, they would have at least uh, hug each other and um, probably uh, began the kissing. And, 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 it's, and it's different. Guys, it's make you feel real uncomfortable in different parts of the world, it, whether it was on the cheek or on the lips, depending on what part of the world you were in. At least we're not asking you to do that. <laughs> you see, what Paul's point isn't whether you kiss or you hug or you shake hands. Paul's emphasizing that we are the same family. Different races, different cultures, different desires and preferences, but we're all one family that the gospel redefines the nature of the family. The other part of the church that he, he deals with is the importance of women. I don't know how many of, the, of these ladies you have noticed in this list, but he calls all of them his fellow worker in verse 3. And Junua uh, is known among the apostles. We don't know what that specifically means, but at the very least, it means that she was known by them. That is, that as the apostles were taking the gospel to the world, this particular lady was known to them, her reputation or maybe her service to them. Phoebe, in verse 1, is even called a deacon. I don't mean that by the office because we're unsure if that's how she's being referred. It's the same word that's covering service and the office of deacon. But it's clear she had some responsibility in the church. Uh, Paul sees her as a benefactor. That is, she's using her resources for the mission. She evidently had means. And Paul entrusts her with this letter. Paul writes it and gives it to Phoebe to take to the church to Rome to read. So she's someone that he trusts. The second theme that he deals with begins in verse 19 where he says, For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. What's he talking about? He, he's he's kind of using the same language that Jesus used of doves and serpents, this idea of false teachers and false uh, teaching that has come that can threaten and come into the church. That's what he means back in verse 18 when he says, for such persons, these false teachers, do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites and, and smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. You see, 
already the beginnings of two false gospels are already coming into the church. One later will have the idea of dualism, which came out of the Greek culture that the physical is unimportant, so it doesn't matter what you do with it, and then the spiritual is all that is important. And so they taught the immortality of the soul, but the body, you can do whatever you want. And you can see where that goes. If, if the gospel is asking to bring us into line with the the, the reality that we are holy, that we are different because Christ has saved us. You can imagine if we adopted dualism, then we could do anything we wanted as long as we didn't affect the soul, as if you could do one without impacting the other. The other a false uh, teaching that's in seed form here it, and, and then comes out later is the Epicureans who are more or less teaching that uh, you need to also uh, begin to uh, keep a sundry laws. That is, they take the gospel, but then there's got to be some more you've got to do. It's almost Jesus plus. Now, here's a little warning before we, we, we move on. And, and, and hear Paul's point here by pointing out false teachers and false teachings. There's two common errors that Christians, we Christians make with regards to false teachers. Well, one is the slippery slope argument. And that is anything and everything is a, 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 a door into something that is evil. And therefore, every argument can lead us uh, to uh, something bad behind a rock or under, uh, under a rock or behind a bush. Well, the other argument's on the other extreme. Isn't that the way we tend to operate? We, we tend to compensate by being at the other end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is simply that failure to see evil anywhere. Paul's point by, by bringing up this is to say that we are in the middle of a spiritual war. There's real casualties and real victories. This is why Paul will say in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Don't miss it. There's a real victory. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you because there are also real casualties. And Paul will mention them in his other letters. One of the things the early church did, because they didn't have Bibles like we do, they, they had scrolls and, and not every church, and, well certainly not every church, but not even every synagogue would have all of the scriptures. And, and so one of the things the early church did very early on, as soon as the apostles had left uh, uh, for heaven, and almost all of them uh, uh, were martyred, uh, they sat down and they wrote what do what have we received from the apostles and they ended up calling that those statements the apostles creed it took about uh, 200 years uh, to get it in the form that we have it today but much of it was ar around 140 uh, AD which is just a hundred years or so after Jesus walked on the earth and barely 40 45 years after John's death the Apostle John and so they were statements, obviously they don't cover everything, but these were the beginnings of how you deal with the controversies of their day. 
You see, they taught contrary, false teachers, to the teaching they received. You see that in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And so what they would do is, instead of saying, hey, have you read the letter to the Romans because they may not have it, people memorized the Apostles' Creed and said, does it fit? This. This is, this is the irreducible, reducible. It doesn't matter whether you're Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Methodist or Baptist. We hold to these doctrines that we have received from the apostles about who God is, who the Spirit is, who Christ is, and the church and the judgment to come. These folks were so excited. There's only about 90 to 100 that most scholars believe when Paul writes this letter to the Romans in Rome, Christians. And they're so excited because they're part of a Christian movement. In 300 years, half of the Roman Empire will convert from paganism to Christianity. Can you imagine that half of the United States converting from whatever we're following today in our culture, and it's hard to define, I understand, a pluralistic society, to true faith in Jesus Christ, what that would be like for us, what we would think and experience in our culture. The last doctrine, and and it's the most important, is this idea of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been secret for long ages past. Jesus Christ is the subject of the gospel. It's not about what we do, it's about what he has already done. And therefore, the gospel is not an argument, it's an announcement. The gospel saves Paul says, for I am not, way back in the beginning, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in this gospel, he's going to tell us what it is now, it is a righteousness that comes from God. But we also know from this that that same gospel that saves us strengthens us as we believe and by faith trust in Christ. But he says that it's a mystery in verse 25. And what he means by that is it was a secret that was there, but people didn't see it for a long time. What did they not see? He tells in verse 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Where? Everywhere. Everywhere. He, he said it in Genesis 3, 3.15. He restated it in the promises to, to Abraham when he says, you will be a blessing to the nations. And now here it's happening. People from every tribe, people and language are becoming Christians. They're so excited about that movement. And that's the mystery. But the Gentiles were always, the nations were always part of the plan. And now we're seeing it actually happen. God, from the very beginning, intended to save all his people, not just the Jews. It is people from every tribe, people, and language. How? Through his son, Jesus Christ. Why? He doesn't tell us. 
That disturbs us. We don't, we don't really know why. Paul's only answer is found in verse 27. To the only wise God. That is, we don't know because we only have human wisdom. God only knows and he hadn't told us why. But we do know this. That he has the perspective that we don't have. He knows what's going on in our world. He knows how, where it went wrong. He knows how to put it right again because he can see the beginning from the end. Because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Therefore, your view matters. Your perspective matters. This letter is a glimpse into the wisdom of God. And it results in high praise. Did you notice that? All of this great message of the gospel for the last 16 chapters, where does it end? In praise. Doxology, that part of the liturgy where our only response to the great good news of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus is to praise him. After peering into the eternal glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, now we rejoice. The only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you know what the church did when they rediscovered the gospel in 1517? That's the Reformation. They defined the gospel as grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. When they discovered the gospel and it changed the, 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 the hearts of the people, they could say only sola Deo gloria. To God be glory. That's our response as we think about our individual salvation, but what God is doing in the world. Our only response is to God be the glory. We're coming to the Lord's Supper where all three of these things are being proclaimed to us in the supper. First of all, the supper is not our supper. It's not EP supper. It's the Lord's Supper. Christology. But it's also not just that he lived, but that he died. And so we have the bread that pictures that Jesus came and died. But what's the importance of it? That's why the cup is given to us so that we might see that his death atoned for our sins. It paid for so that we might be forgiven. That's what? Soteriology. And then the, the last one is it is for us. Ecclesiology. Christ died for the church. Christ died for us.